Okay, like before, this is going to be a sort of rapid-fire uh, series of cases that try to cut on um, today's world. These are actually questions that I monitor and collect over the course of the last year. These are the ones that I get from colleagues or that have come up in my practice. And so I think you'll find them hopefully relevant. And so I'll start off every... Um, every case presentation starts with a question that at least orients you to what ballpark we're in, you know, whether it's football, baseball, soccer, whatever. And then we move forward with the actual case and a question and we'll have discussion among the panelists. And uh, you've already met some of our panelists. In addition is uh, Poonan uh, Mathis, who's here from DC and, and uh, welcome. And Joe Iran, who you're going to hear from later today at University of North Carolina, and Dave Thomas from just down the road at Hopkins in Baltimore. So, um, without any further ado, we will get started. These are my disclosures. They're also in your um, handout. I've been criticized for going off this slide too quickly, so I'm counting to 10 uh, while I'm talking. Uh, in the back of my head, there's a little thing going. Okay. But it's also in your handout. So we're going, to have, we're going to cover a wide range of topics, uh, as you'll see. So here's the first question. What regimen should I use as initial therapy? And, and Joe has a question like this in his talk as well, but this is a little bit more, um, more choices, perhaps, than what his has. So there's a 48-year-old guy who's newly diagnosed, who comes to your practice. He's asymptomatic. His viral load is 28,000. His CD4 count is 650. He's HLA B5701 positive. He's got wild type virus, normal renal function. If you think he should start, he's ready to go. So at this point, which regimen would you choose? The uh, first option is a generic Fovrins, which is now available at 400 milligrams. Uh, Dietegravir 3TC, fixed dose combination. Uh, and you can sort of go through the rest. Um, and I'll let you look for a second, and now we'll go ahead and vote. And I've got new music than the elevator jazz you've been listening to. Is that, yeah. Oh, how does a bastard orphan, son of a whore, and a Scotsman drop in the middle of a forgotten spot in the middle of a Caribbean? Providence impoverished and squalor. Grew up to be a hero and a scholar. Now, in, in, in other places, they said, the music is distracting. I don't think, I think I'm distracting. So just ignore me. Just ignore me and vote. That's what's most important. While slaves are being slaughtered and carted away. Oops. I didn't mean to do that. Mike, we should warn you there's a consensus on this end of the panel that if you start rapping, we're leaving. <laughs> well, that was the only song, I think, unless they get to Guns and Ships and then I'm in trouble. Um, okay, so it looks like, interesting, we have a couple folks that are going for generics. Uh, most are choosing integrase inhibitors of different sorts, a little bit more towards the unboosted ones. Uh, panel, let's start... Uh, Poonan, why don't you start us off and tell us what you would do here in the, in the D.C. area. <laughs> in the D.C. area. Okay, well, um, so I think that since we know the HLA B57 is positive, that eliminates our choice for a back of ear, which luckily nobody chose. 
Um, Very so sophisticated. I got to tell you, other sites, there's two to five percent. So good for you guys. You got it. Pay yeah. attention. <laughs> so they, they weren't distracted. Yeah, I know. Well, yeah. <laughs> Um, so in starting a treatment-naive patient who um, has relatively no comorbidities and seems willing to start therapy, I would look to start a double nuke plus either a PI or integrase inhibitor. And in this case, I would choose an integrase inhibitor since there's lower risk of side effects. I would pick a TAF and FTC due to um, lower incidence of any renal dysfunction uh -huh. um, or any uh, prolonged comorbidity with bone mineral density decrease. So I think in this case, I would agree with the audience and pick uh, the fixed-dose combination of TAF-FTC plus dolutegravir. Right. And we have a, a substitution for Dr. Mazur. Uh, entering, the, entering the game is Dr. Carlos Rio from Emory. He'll speak to us later. Um, other comments. So integrase seems to be the rule. Does anybody want to support the use of, uh, of a boosted PI here? Nah. No, I, I don't. I don't. I don't think so. I, I mean, I think um, the the only choice I would kind of disagree with, and it may people may have chosen it because of access. I don't think there's a reason now to uh, provide a, a, an integrase with a with a booster. No. Yeah. Um, I, I, mm. it, no. But that that may be that that um, I know that a lot of insurance um, uh, still requiring prior authorization for for TAF FDC Bictegravir. So maybe that's a reason why they. Would have picked the the um, oh wow, that's impressive. Um, printed on the spot. Um, uh, so, but I, I think there isn't really a need for a, a, a booster in 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 this setting. Okay. What about what does anybody want to take on the 400 milligram Fabrin's generic uh, fixed dose combination? I can do that if you'd like. So. Um, this is a new, it's been released. Um, it's using instead of 600 milligrams of a Fibrin, it's 400. And uh, if you think back to the day when, when you worked with DMP006, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand if you remember that, but that just means you're over the age of 50. Um, this, was, this was a Fibrin when it was being developed and they just sort of guessed at a dose, uh, sort of like that scene in Robin Hood Men in Tights where Blinken is up keeping watch, the blind guy, and he says, I'm guessing? I'm guessing that no one, so they were guessing that there was 600 milligram was right. And in fact, we've probably been um, overdosing Fabrins a bit, and now there are a fair amount of data that supports 400 milligrams. And that's especially true in African-American communities where the um, isoenzyme uh, uh, D26, uh, I think is the one, um, mm. basically is, uh, is, is uh, metabolism of Fabrins is not as efficient. And um, the point is, is that that dose is probably much better tolerated, right? Much better tolerated. But we're in D.C. and cost is always important, um, so we, you know, might use that. One thing I wanted to bring up, um, there was a pretest question that 30% of you got right. Um, that means 70% didn't. Um, was a question about you start therapy on somebody, which of the following drugs was most likely to contribute to a bump in creatinine at one week? Okay, most of you went with TDF. Now, I would say it's possible that some patients might have a little bump, but not all patients, right? But this particular drug would cause a bump in creatinine by 0.1 or so milligrams percent, and that's, in the, the case of that question, it was Bictegravir. 
This also applies to dolutegravir, which is more like 0.1 to 0.15 milligrams per deciliter. Um, and also cobicistat can do the same. And the mechanism is as follows on this slide, that um, when I was in medical school, they didn't teach us this because nobody knew about these renal transporters in the proximal tubules, but they do secrete creatinine. So it takes it from the plasma, puts it in the urine. Glomerular filtration does the majority of, of creatinine clearance, but there's secretion. And these drugs, Bictegravir to a lesser degree than Dolutegravir and Cobicistat, can interfere with the secretion, those, ice, those renal transport proteins, and you will uniformly see a bump in creatinine of about 0.1 to 0.15. And here's an example. This case is Dolutegravir. Uh, compared to a fovereins and orange, and you can see there it is that that sort of um, uh, in this case it's uh, looking at uh, baseline creatinine and micromolars, but that, that's okay. It's still roughly the same, about 0.1 to 0.15 milligrams per deciliter, and it's instantaneous. It happens right away. So that's just something to keep in mind when you start these drugs. And a few other drugs, if I'm not mistaken, Rilpivirine does this a little bit as well. It's just a new world. Um, things that we weren't taught in medical school or, or nurse practitioner school or wherever, a pharmacy uh, school, these things are now available. And, and Bactrim no. does the same. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's just, you know, a new world. All right, let's go to the next case. We're still on what to start. Here comes the same guy, more or less except he has weight loss and fatigue, and he's got a really high viral load and a CD4 count of 21, and he's now HLA-B5701 negative, somehow. Uh, wild type, normal renal function, wants to start therapy. Here's your similar list of what you might want to do. Let's go ahead and vote. We're still in Hamilton. This is the third song. I won't rap. King's College, you know where that is? Columbia. Shiny piece of coal. <laughs> he can't stop himself. <laughs> okay, let's go. All right. Um, all right, interesting, right? So. People were listening a little bit. We have fewer boosted um, integrase inhibitors. Uh, we have shied away from darunavir. Interestingly, we have dolutegravir 3TC. Joe, you want to comment on that? It's 750,000 copies of virus. Yeah, I, I think, again, these two drug therapies, what we'll get into it later this afternoon, are, are pretty unproven, and, and certainly unproven at very high viral load. Um, uh, we, we do have some data uh, for people greater than 100,000 and less than 500,000, but um, even in the large phase three studies, they're, they're, they wouldn't, they, we wouldn't enroll a patient like this. So I think that would be kind of a, a, a tricky um, choice in this case. Okay. Yeah, so I think under 100,000 would be it. What about uh, David Hardy? What about a Bacavir? What about the use of a Bacavir? You know, I thought you weren't supposed to use that above 100,000 copies. This is 750,000. That's a great trick question, Mike. Oh. Um, it, it, previously, it was noted that when a Bacavir 3TC was paired with Bucetazanavir uh, or Fabrins, it had a less favorable um, viral load suppression rate. However, in follow-up studies, when the same two nukes were paired with 
um, doitegravir, the same sort of differential in terms of response was not seen. Yeah. So I wouldn't be so concerned about the abacavir 3TC because the doitegravir is there right. with it. Yeah, the data show that. And, and efavirenz actually works pretty well with higher yeah. viral loads, although people tend to uh, put that aside. Uh, but I think most people got this, so I think there's kind of group think that's probably correct. Dave, and, and I like I like the back over three to see dollars in this patient, as you know, 22 percent or 25 percent of you did, just because it's it's a single pill and it allows mm -hmm. you to do a single pill with no boost. I mean, it's a really good option in somebody like this. This guy wasn't a smoker. He was a 56 year old with cardiovascular disease, diabetes, other reasons why you wouldn't use this. So yeah. this this would be a good choice in a patient like this. Uh, Dave Thomas, it, it, what if you were Hep C co-infected? Would that affect your thinking at all? Yeah, I mean, the the main way it would affect your thinking is you'd try to steer clear of medications for HIV that would later complicate your Hep C treatment. So, the integrase inhibitor class is fantastic for avoiding those, and um, additionally, avoiding the boosting uh, types of medications helps down the road. Not that you can't overcome it, but it's it's definitely helpful though. Right. So these are the drugs that I think most of us are going to be using uh, over the next year or so for initial therapy unless there's, you're going to tailor it for certain specific situations and you're already uh, voting in that way. Um, in an RTIs, I think if the viral load is less than 100,000, uh, Ropivirine is a small tablet, fixed dose combination, pretty good and it's now co-formulated with TAF. And there's a drug you're going to see released probably in the third quarter, around October, I'm guessing, um, is Durabarine, um, and you're going to hear about that from Joe a little bit later. The other thing I wanted to mention was cost. We mentioned this, but um, many of you who work in the D.C. area work with government, maybe work with PEPFAR programs overseas. This is the annual cost, annual cost of generic drugs as available to um, low-income countries. And, and you can see that the actual cost to those countries is reasonable, right? right? $60 for one year's worth of a fixed-dose combination of TAF-3TC and dolutegravir. Um, so I've said this at other meetings, and somebody said, well, so you're criticizing our giving drugs or creating drugs opportunities for low-middle-income countries. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that look at the delta between the full list price here in the United States and what they're able to sell it for in, in developing world countries, and you can do the math yourself. Um, it's just that I think we should be pushing a little bit toward um, making it a little bit more affordable. And we do have 340B pricing, which helps us some, and the VA and other systems have negotiated lower pricing than list price, but uh, just something to keep in mind. Okay. This is a hypothetical, it's kind of groupthink. Uh, you heard earlier from David Hardy about um, this uh, new Merck uh, compound that lasts a long time. So there's other things that you're gonna hear about from Joe in terms of cabotegravir and some others. So the case almost doesn't matter. The question is, among the long-acting agents that might become available over the next five years, which do you think would be the most appealing? A long-acting pill that's given once a week a very long-acting pill that's given every four to eight weeks, a long-acting injectable every two months, and this is not for PrEP, this is for treatment, an implantable disc that you go in and have placed in somebody's office and removed and replaced every six months. 
you might not use long asking formulation or no opinion. Let's go ahead and vote and see what kind of music we got. I've learned to slam on the brake. Yeah, it's great play, right? Dear Evan Hansen, today's going to be a good day. And here's why. I've learned to slam on the Okay. So the majority kind of go that way. Um, what, what would you think would be most attractive to your patients um, uh, here? Um, well, speaking from the experience in DC um, with our patients, though the implantable disc does seem appealing because it's less frequent, I'm not sure how well our patients would react to hmm. having something hmm. implanted. Or, uh -huh. you know, even if you say I'm placing it subcutaneously, I think that there is some, um, you know, there would be some mistrust unless you had a really good relationship with your patient. They may be more open to the long-acting injectable. I think that um, one important thing is that, you know, if you have the assistance of case managers or case health workers, for example, sometimes it's more appealing to have um, a dosing frequency that's sort of in the middle range because that way you keep in contact with the patient more often and you can build the trust. So I think my answer would be it depends on how long I've known this patient. So maybe I'd start out with the long-acting injectable and then once I establish a good relationship, um, consider discussing with them the implantable disc. Yeah, I think you nailed it. At, at the point I guess I would take away from this is, isn't it cool mm -hmm. that we're going to have options like this? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. It's going to be a tailored thing that you create. I think you're right. I think uh, maybe I've watched too many uh, episodes of Homeland where I'm worried to put something in me. It's going to track me as I go to Moscow or something. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, there are going to be different things, different strokes for different folks, and I think that's really what's kind of cool. The, the I, I, hate to, I hate to inform you, Mike. You already have something on you that uh, helps you, that has people track you. Never you already are wearing that. something. And, you don't and, need to put it on your skin. You put it on your skin. Tying that back to the Dear Evan Hansen, that song about waving through the window is about looking at the glass on a t cell phone, but that's another story. The, the, the point is that what we really have to be careful about is in the case of a long-acting tablet, once you've administered it, it's there. So if there's an adverse event, it's going to be there for a while. Um, and so the notion of how are we going to deal with that if there's an untoward or an allergic reaction, getting it out. So that's where the implantable disc may be an advantageous thing. If you do the injection, it's there. You can't change that. Um, so those are the kinds of things we're going to have to be working through. Just but, to kind of but I think, Mike, that unless things change dramatically, even with the currently available strategy with or with injectables, uh, you have to do an oral induction phase and tolerance phase okay. precisely for what you're saying. Right. So you have to get somebody to understand that you're going to have to take it for about a month or maybe two, you know, four to six weeks orally, and they have to show adherence, and you have to show that it works that way before you switch them to an injectable. And that's actually the good time to start developing the rapport, et cetera. So there's nothing that somebody's going to come and say, here's an injection, see you in six months. True, but, but the longer-acting Merck drug, the MK85-91, that one, there, to my knowledge, isn't a short-acting version of it. So once you give it, it's there, and that's something we're going to have to deal with. Maybe there won't be any uh, allergies. Hmm. <laughs> All right. How should I counsel a patient with undetectable HIV RNA? So this is the same guy who came in, but now he got started, and he returns for his three-month visit, and things are going great. 
right? His viral load's less than 20. He's happy, tolerating the drugs well. And assuming he remains, un remains undetectable, you tell him that his risk of transmitting HIV to a seronegative partner via sexual activity is zero risk under these circumstances, virtually zero risk, no one knows for sure, very low risk possible, depends on what regimen. Come on, SAG, I don't like this question. Let's go ahead and vote. <laughs> if you don't like the music, you can hit 6-2. Um, yeah. Go ahead and vote. So, somewhere between zero and virtually zero. How about very low risk? Um, what would you guys say? I think the trick to your question is it's only three months. I would like to see this person remain undetectable yeah. until about six months. And at this point in time, I would say, at three months, I would say, well, virtually zero, but you know, you still want to wait a little okay, longer. Okay, yeah, I think what I'm trying to get at, um, that's why. I but if somebody's persistently suppressed, yes. the, the, the answer is zero. Okay. And, yeah. But that's, again, that's the other issue. It is not a one-time measurement only. This is something I emphasize with patients. It is you need, you need to, for U equals U to work, you have to take your pills and remain undetectable. And that's something that we need to emphasize to people. Right. Just because you're undetectable one doesn't mean you're undetectable all the time. And, and that, I think, is part of the, while U equals U sounds great, we need to be sure that, that we, we emphasize the, the necessity to be undetect persistently undetectable. And we know from continuous care continuum that that's not the case. Not everybody's continuously undetectable. Yeah. David Hardy, you look like you're... I agree with, with Carlos, but maybe a little more from a different standpoint is that, you know, the, the difficulty about translating this good science into patient care is that I think we ought to make, really use it to empower a patient and say, yeah. you will, can you have sex without a condom? That is completely under your control, patient. It is completely under your control. If you keep yourself undetectable, then your virus, the chance of you transmitting the virus is virtually zero, but it's under your control. Right. So I, I think we take it out of the abstract of here's what the study showed yeah. to here's something you can do yeah, yourself. I, I, I agree. I, sure. At least in my practice, I'm sure yours, I see heads nodding affirmatively that that, that really helps motivate patients to continue to stay on their regimen. And so the term U equals U, I think most people heard of that, undetectable equals untransmissible is a message. And maybe we should add a third U, which is under your control, um, which is which is great. Um, and 4% didn't like this question. Mike, okay. what do you think about, what do you say to the patient if they ask you if they need to disclose their status anymore now in light yeah. of this? Uh, and I think that part of the problem, I mean, the, the, it's a great message, and if you think back 20 years ago, to be able to say that to patients is really, really cool, right, that we've made this kind of progress. On the other hand, uh, with less condom use in general, we're seeing a lot more STIs, we're seeing a lot of syphilis, and uh, so the game isn't over, uh, but at least that's some good messaging. Here's a common question get all the time. Um, what regimen should I use as initial therapy when there's an initial M184V present? Um, so this is a woman who 
uh, has a viral load of 128,000, CD4 count of 350, B5701 negative. And, and it is unusual for an M184V only, so I've just made that for the point of illustration of the question. It's, you can sort of get after me for that. Most often there's more than that transmitted, um, but let's say that's what it is. Uh, doesn't plan to become pregnant, okay to start therapy. What would you use in this setting? Let's, it's the same list as you had before. Let's go ahead and vote. Oh, I've always wanted to see the Emerald City. <laughs> there is a wicked choice on this that you don't want to pick, I will tell you. You'll turn into Alpha Bun Melt. Uh, let's go ahead and see what our voting looks like. Ah, 2% got alpha bud. Um, so within 184V, Dalutegravir uh, 3TC, anybody want to take that? Joe? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, that with, with 3TC resistance, you're, you know, it's probably not quite the same as Dalutegravir monotherapy because 3TC and FTC have some persistent activity, but that would be an incredibly risky choice, I think, in this patient. Um, I, I think the choice that most people selected really is an excellent one. Um, we don't really have good data uh, in, uh, for transmitted drug resistance with um, dolutegravir, but we have good second-line data where um, uh, in the developing world, uh, uh, participants with multiple nucleoside mutations were, were treated with dolutegravir and at least one fully active nuke and had really outstanding responses. Yeah. So I think that translates pretty well uh, to this scenario. Um, I also, with, with um, uh, Bictegravir, I, I think that there are data from the um, comparative trial between Bictegravir and Dalutegravir looking at uh, uh, a fraction of the patients that came in with transmitted drug resistance. Now, none of them came in with 184V, so you can't really yeah. apply that data, but, but Bictegravir certainly looked good with kind of the standard transmitted drug resistance, which was mostly NNRPN. Right. So th that was the point. There's two reasons maybe not to choose the dilutegravir 3TC. One is the resistance. The second, remember, the viral load was above 100,000, so that's kind of two slams. Also, a Bacavir. Um, it still remains mostly active, but it does take a hit when there's an M184V there. So you may want to lean away a little bit from the fixed dose combination of Bacavir 3TC dilutegravir. But I think the take-home point, the, the, for those people keeping score at home, I think that was a downing study that was you were quoting. Um, about first failure followed up with dilutegravir, but I think it applies to any integrase, it's potent. Um, so that's kind of reassuring. But a lot of people were, were leaning, uh, when they called me with this question, towards, well, maybe I should add, in addition to dilutegravir, two nukes, maybe add some boosted darunavir as well, and now you don't really need that. All right, this is, this is for the resistance mavens in the crowd, so uh, fasten your seatbelt. Um, what should I use when there's an S147G integrase mutation? So this is a case that we actually had in clinic, a uh, 30-year-old guy who was started on Elvitegravir-boosted TAF-FTC and came back with two viral loads greater than uh, 1,000. So we checked the genotype, and it showed solely uh, S147G integrase mutation, but also had an M184V. So. What are you going to do here? I'll give you a chance to kind of look through this. Um, 
Dalutegravir once or twice daily, continue the Alvitegravir, go to Bictegravir, uh, do Raltegravir. Go ahead and vote. This is a little bit obscure. Anybody know this one? The song is called Welcome to the Renaissance. Bubonic Plague. Bubonic Plague. Yeah. It's almost as obscure as this mutation. <laughs> that's great point. Uh, that's from a play called Something Rotten. And the thesis was two, two playwrights were trying to compete with Shakespeare and Elizabethan. And they had to go to a musical to compete with them is the thesis. All right. So there are some answers here that are probably wrong and some that are not sure. So... Uh, anybody want to take this from the panel, the 147G? Well, uh, first of all, it, it, full disclosure, I would have to Google this mutation because this is not really a standard um, uh, or a common integrase-selected mutation. Um, uh, but um, I think that uh, if you go by the book and you have an um, integrase mutation that's uh, selected for uh, and you want to use dolutegravir, then you should use it twice daily. I think this particular mutation, and Mike can talk about it, has much less impact on dolutegravir, so that you're in this kind of zone where you don't know, well, if I give it twice daily, is that going to impact their adherence? And maybe if I give it once daily, it would be better. Um, the other thing I would say, the other choice, this it certainly would be reasonable to use a boosted protease inhibitor in yep. this setting. It would be perfectly reasonable if those people were thinking about other. Yep. yep. So just to get cut to the chase, this actually did come up in clinic, so... It's not, this isn't like one of the crazy things I make up. And the question to me was exactly what Joe had said, and that is, um, can I use once daily dolutegravir, or do I have to use twice daily? And darunavir also was an option. So, but they, the patient really wanted an integrase inhibitor for whatever reason. And the guidelines say twice daily, as Joe just said. When you go and dig a little deeper, you'll see that that 147G mutation is specific for alvitegravir. And there does not appear to be any effect on dolutegravir. And when you go further, uh, this is a Stanford database. At the bottom, now in the red box, you can see it does not reduce RAL or dolutegravir susceptibility. So we were really torn with what to do. And I think a, a conservative approach would be to use the dolutegravir twice a day. You probably can't go wrong with that unless, even if they skip the dose, you're no worse off, except for the cost. And then the other side might be to use darunavir. Uh, this patient and provider elected to use once daily. I couldn't scream at them and say that was totally wrong. And the patient so far has done well, but this was only about eight months ago, so it's still a bit too so, soon. So, Mike, can I, do you mind if I add a little bit? Yeah, little please. Because uh, we don't have very much about Bictegra in our program here today. And um, so I think it's important to note that Bictegravir has a very similar in vitro activity to dolutegravir. So, so um, again, even though it's not, maybe it's in the Stanford database now, but you would expect Bictegravir also to be um, active yeah. against this mutation. We don't really right. have an option to give Bictegravir twice a day because it only comes in a fixed tablet. But again, if you were um, uh, going to go with um, uh, once daily, 
therapy, you, you could potentially get this person on one, uh, one pill. I'm glad you raised that, pill. yeah, because this was back eight months ago. We didn't have didn't Vic, have it, right. and so it wasn't on the table. But I, I agree with you. I think it would, it, especially with the choice they made, uh, Vic would have been equal, in my opinion. All right, coming back to reality. Uh, some seems like we're now using ARV for about everyone, but what about starting immediately? And this is something you're gonna hear a lot more from Carlos about uh, in his talk, but just to kind of set the stage. You've got a 30-year-old guy who was diagnosed four hours ago in the ER. The RNA is unknown, the CD4 is unknown, uh, B57 is unknown, genotypes pending. Um, he's okay to start, he's a little blown away by the diagnosis like we've all seen in our practices. Uh, but the question is, would you start him right now in the ER would you set them up with an outpatient visit in a day or two, the next two weeks, two to four weeks, some other option? Let's go ahead and vote. That, Henry said I would dance. This would be the one I would dance to, and I'm not going to do Get it. Your life I need an umbrella. <laughs> okay. Carlos, you want to give us a preview of coming attractions? So, you know, the issue is, is what's immediately, and immediately is, is as soon after diagnosis as you possibly can. And... In, in some of the studies that have been done, both uh, clinical trials and retrospective looks, the whole idea of, you know, you get somebody tested, they're positive, you start them right away. And we typically think about, you know, testing, <coughs> linkage, start ART, then you know, retention and suppression. Here you think about the start ART step, you move it even before the linkage, and you can literally test start ART. And what the studies have shown is that actually by doing that, uh, the linkage has improved, the retention has improved, and the biologic suppression has improved. So if you can, you would like to start this person right now in the ED if they're willing to start. And I think about it the way I think about, you know, we diagnose somebody with a urinary tract infection. We say, here's some medications, or with an STD. We don't say, you know, you have an STD, come back to clinic in a month so we can start you on therapy. You know, you, you, you start it right away. So it also is a component of where you have something and we're doing something for you, and, and, it, and it's, it's good to follow. Part of the challenge that we have in our country is, you know, the payer, who's going to pay for this, how do you get the approval, et cetera, et cetera. So we have bureaucratic barriers, and I think dealing with the bureaucracy and the bureaucratic barriers to do this is the biggest challenge we have in the U.S. And overseas, they have something called PEPPART that makes it very easy to start people on therapy. They don't have the bureaucracies that we have to deal with in Africa. Um, the, uh, but, you know, what we have made, for example, in, in our clinic in Atlanta, we've made the commitment that if somebody's diagnosed, we'll get them into the clinic to start them on therapy within 72 hours of diagnosis. Yep. And that also is the, and, and we call that, you know, our rapid start and our rapid start clinic. And that has worked well. So I think I would go within the one, two days, it's also good. I think, you know, if you wait more, you start waiting two, four, six weeks. You recall even the, uh, the, the national uh, HIV strategy, the first strategy say, you know, linkage should be within three months. The new version of the strategy in 2015 said linkage within a month. I think telling somebody, you know, you got something that's really terrible infection and we'll see you in a month just doesn't work very well. We got to get people into, I mean, if you, if you were diagnosed with HIV today, if I was diagnosed with HIV today, what do I want to do tomorrow? See a doctor, right? Okay. See somebody, see a provider can take care of me and start me on therapy right away. So in so that, by starting somebody on therapy, 
if you can say, well, we cannot see you, but we can start you on therapy right away, I think it's, it's also sending a very positive message. And the data is very clear that you can do that. We have the tools to do it. The, the drugs are good to do this. There's some drugs that you wouldn't start, obviously, you wouldn't start somebody in a, a Bacavir-based regimen, but I think, for example, Pictavir is a great regimen to yeah. start somebody so in, Dave, in right away therapy. What, what do you think, Dave Hardy? We have a program here in D.C. called the Red Carpet Program. It's been going on since about 2009, which by its name, it basically gives priority to people who are newly diagnosed. And whether it, it occurs at one of our own testing sites in the, that Whitman Walker has or any place in the district, and all the federally qualified health clinics are committed to doing this as well, and that is the person, it's first of all sees an insurance person, insurance uh, navigator, then, an, then a nurse case manager, and then a provider, yep. usually within 24 to 48 hours. So that a, a, a ring of support is built around this person until they actually see the provider, because when the provider sees them first and that hasn't happened, then the education about what the person's even starting to deal with it and support's not there, because we only see patients for 20 minutes, and, and the insurance has not even been looked at. So yeah. the provider can't really even do anything. You can write a prescription, give it to the patient, the patient can't get it filled. Yeah. So you know there are steps that have to occur, even in a system as good as what I think DC has put together, um, to make sure it happens in a, in a timely fashion. But, and you give people priority by right. saying, come in first, come ahead of everyone else. But I think we really have to make sure that we are supporting all these other things to make it reasonable. Right. I would never start someone in the ER because they never see that person again. Yeah. So uh, I think a lot of uh, a lot of Americans are feeling guilty that you know the overseas are doing this right away and we're not. I think it, it really depends on your individual situation. I think Carlos will talk about that and their experience in Atlanta. Um, but also another reason why they've done this in sub-Saharan Africa this way is because some people live a great distance away and transportation is a huge issue. And so just kind of getting it all done while they have them in, in the facility makes more sense in a way. We have transportation issues here too. That's why I say it's kind of individualized. Carlos will go over these data with you um, in his talk. This is the Atlanta experience. Um, should I change a regimen when there's low-level detectable virus present? get this question all the time. So as a 55-year-old guy who's referred to you, diagnosed 18 years ago, had a very high viral load, a low CD4 count. Uh, currently, his HIV RNA comes back at 85, and he had a prior value of 62 in the visit before. CD4 count's nice now, 525. Um, he had started on some older regimens, as you'd predict, but now he's on a pretty modern regimen, dilutegravir, boosted darunavir, and 3TC. And um, that's kind of where he is. He doesn't have any historical resistance tests available that you can get a hold of. So would you change his therapy now? Yes, no, or not sure? Go ahead and vote. <laughs> this is my motto song. So it's like crazy optimism. That, that's what it's like to work with me, which is obnoxious over time. Um, okay, does anybody know where that's from? It's a play called Next to Normal. Great play about um, uh, psychiatric illness and how we deal with it in the U.S. Okay, so um, most people would not change the regimen. Poonam, what, what do you think? I agree. I wouldn't change the therapy right now. Um, I 
question the significance of the 62 or 85 copies of the lab result, and so I would keep the same therapy and then continue to check the viral loads. Uh -huh. Any other thoughts from the panel about what might be going on here? Why is it detectable? I call this the tyranny of undetectability. <laughs> because, what do you call it? Because we have like been, that. in many ways, brainwashed by the fact that one laboratory tries to create an assay that can go down to 20 versus other that only goes down to 40, uh -huh. and somehow that one's better. And we get this thing pounded into patients about the fact that if they don't hit that goal, there's something wrong. Yeah. And, in, and with lower levels like that, it could just be assay variability. It could be the fact that there are inflammatory things that are going on in that person's life. Right. And to try to make people worry about that is crazy. Yeah, and, and that's kind of the point here. That this, we see this, right, all of us. It tends to happen in someone just like this, who way back when had a very high viral load, which means that their reservoir of lately infected cells is typically larger than someone who came with a viral load of 1,000 at early presentation. So those cells still exist, and every now and then they get stimulated, and they can kick out virus. And that's not doesn't mean there's ongoing replication to another cell, which is all the antiretroviral therapy does is prevent that from happening. So it's just viral blip that's coming out of cells. Yeah, your question? So, so the question is, how often would you repeat the RNA? And the guidelines would say if you got it the first time within four weeks just to make sure it's not going above 200 to 400, and that's a different story. But if it's still persistently, then I, I agree with uh, Poon and others that I would just monitor it and keep going because that's probably just that person, and it's a biologic phenomena combined with an assay issue. But we shouldn't, otherwise we start chasing our tail, uh, I, right? I, I do think that... You know, the, the, if you had the full history on this guy, it sounds like he came from another clinic maybe. If someone has been consistently, you know, less than 40 not detected or less than 20 not detected, and then they're 82 and 85, again, I wouldn't change therapy, but that person I might actually have them come in a little bit more frequently and, and ask them about, you know, their um, uh, uh, ability to tolerate the medicine. This is not a particularly nimble regimen, right? Darunavir, cobicistat. Uh, dolutegrin 3TC, he probably could be on something simpler based on his history. So, I, I, you know, it would depend a little bit. I, I mean, these people that have these bigger reservoirs tend to have that kind of low-level viremia off and on throughout their, their course. And they may be a person who also um, took longer to suppress. Um, you know, they didn't quite get Almost less than certainly. 50 by six months. So, yeah. so those are the kind of clues. Um, uh, uh, we, we, did a study last year where we looked at actually the same sample tested twice, and frequently the same sample is actually below detectable. So uh, there is a lot of assay variability, as people point out. So yeah, we'll get to yeah. Go ahead and yell out. Okay, the value of an archive genotype, which you might, if you were going to change, you would go ahead and do that, right? You're talking about the DNA test, and most I think of us would use that. Um, but I don't know that I would switch therapy, right? So if I'm not going to switch therapy, I don't know that I would order that test. But an archive genotype would be something you might use to assess what, whether there's resistance. But I, personally, in this case, I would just follow like we were talking about. But yeah, it's a good question. Okay, and we're going to do Q&A here in a second. This is about a pregnant woman. Um, so this is a lady who presents newly diagnosed as she uh, showed up to her um, obstetrician, two and a half months pregnant, 
Viral load is 28,000, CD4 counts 650, B5701 negative, wild type virus. Uh, it's her first pregnancy. She wants to start therapy. What are you going to use? There are your choices. Let's go ahead and vote. Okay, so a lot of people went with TAF and Dalutegravir, 43%. Huh. Hmm. They must have data we don't have. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Carl, let's take it. So, so I think this is a big question and an important one. Uh, a couple of years ago, the, the PROMISE study was published, and PROMISE uh, was a really interesting randomized trial done in Africa comparing, you know, starting on a TAF regimen versus an ACT regimen. And in that... Regimen. And a, a, TDF, regimen. TDF regimen, yeah, a TDF versus an AZT regimen. And there, those that were in the, TD, in the, in the TDF regimen had lower, much lower birth weights, much lower uh, uh, premature, higher incidence of premature birth, low birth weights, et cetera. And it scared a lot of us quite significantly. So in, actually in yesterday's New England Journal of Medicine, there's a paper published looking at this in two big cohorts in the U.S., and the good news from that study is there's no difference by using TDF versus cytobutin. So you should be fairly comfortable using a TDF-based regimen. A lot of obstetricians, fortunately a regimen that is barely, now is not even here, is lopinavir, ritonavir, which in many, which is something that the you know, WHO still recommends as, as therapy in pregnant women. The regimen that looks the best in this study, in this most recent study, is actually the you know, TDF-FTC atazanavir. Looks like it has the best results. Uh, we have no data with TAF and no data with integrase inhibitors in, in pregnancy. So mm -hmm. I think if you're going to use a regimen in this woman, you want to go by, by what's, what will be best, what's safest, recommended. I would say, you know, the, the TDF, FTC, a boosted atazanavir will be something that I will feel totally yeah, fine with. Yeah, so there's less, there's less data, there's no data on COBE, uh, so that's probably out. The TAF story is, on this slide, um, that the diphosphate intracellular level is four to five times higher for TAF than TDF in, in, in women, um, in pregnant women. And so the question is, does that expose the fetus to higher risk? The data are out. So currently the guidelines say hold back on TAF for now. Uh, so maybe by this time next year that will change and your answer will be 100% correct. Right now there's just a yellow flag, right, saying, mm, you know, hold back just for now. And then the dalutegravir, actually there are some new data. Um, the, the previous data showed that there's no fetal toxicity or teratogenicity, but there was higher placental transfer of dalutegravir relative to other art. And so the, the question was, um, is that associated with uh, problems with the infant? And there are some, some cohort type data that show that it appears that it's okay. So that's kind of going from yellow to green. It's not quite there yet, but it's headed that way. And the uh, perinatal guidelines just changed to include dalutegravir as an alternative. So whereas before they said don't do it, now it's probably okay. I agree with Carlos, atazanavir for sure, efavirenz even, uh, even though you uh, 
uh, that have been uh, category whatever D or don't use. Um, the more recent data support that it's it's okay. It's been neural tube. In her case, neural tube closes at six to eight weeks. She's two and a half months. It's probably just fine. So those are th that's kind of the current status of things. And, I want to make sure. And Raltegravir is perfectly yeah uh, and, uh, appropriate. Yeah. And is on the perinatal guidelines as, a, as an alternative. Is that for, that's twice a day though, right? Yeah, it would probably be twice a day, right? I, I don't know what the yeah. data is. I, I don't think, yeah, it's the twice a day in the Yeah, the, the 1,200 ones. So, hmm. um, okay, so, so, so. I think a follow-up question to that one, I would love to see what people think. We don't have the voting, but you have a pregnant woman who's in regimen X and is virally suppressed. Do you change it? Because that's a question obstetricians ask all the time. No. Yeah. yeah there's one exception. What's yeah. the exception? All the time. Elvitegravir, Kobe, yeah. right? Yeah. You, you actually, uh, it's recommended that gets changed. Right, Because right. there's more biologic failure. Mm -hmm. So this is picking up on what David Hardy talked to you about. The Abacavir story continues to evolve. So here's the story. 62-year-old guy who um, started on ARV years ago, uh, returns to your care after being gone somewhere in California, and now is back. Um, and he's been through several regimens, but now he's on fixed dose combination of Bacavir, 3TC, Dalutegravir, doing well virologically. Cholesterol is okay. He's, um, he's on a statin and things are at target. His creatinine's okay. Uh, he's a smoker, um, but otherwise his medical history is negative, especially cardiac history. And as I mentioned, he's on a statin and low dose aspirin. So here he is. He's just coming back to see you and you're kind of know about data here and there, would you just continue his current regimen and say, we're okay, uh, changes ARV uh, to TAF FTC containing in some sort, um, and or change uh, to other things. Go ahead and vote. Spam a lot, right? And uh, have a drink and a pee will be after Act 3, no 2. Okay. All right, the majority, it's sort of split. So half would say change the course, change wouldn't be prudent, a la George Herbert Walker Bush. Um, Kuna, what would you do here? Um, well, based on, you know, Dr. Hardy just presented uh, this data um, from Croy regarding how Abacavir was associated with these mixed type plaques, which could lead to a higher incidence of coronary artery disease. So because this patient is a smoker and that increases his chance of CAD, I um, would discuss with him switching his regimen and taking him off of the back of the air. Okay. All right. So what do you think's just your best guess? There's, I'm not sure. I think there's an answer. Um, if you had to choose between... Um, having him quit smoking or stopping his abacavir. <laughs> yes, I would like to refer him for smoking yeah. cessation. I mean, that's, that's also always the board answer, smoking right. cessation. Exactly. Um, exactly. So right <laughs> exactly. So yes, of course. But uh, you know, I think if, if we're trying to overall minimize cardiovascular risk, then maybe we could do two things. Right. And the reason I asked that question is precisely because we, we sort of dance on the head of the pin sometimes about small bits are relative risk, but when you're talking about smoking yeah. versus abacavir, uh, there's a big difference, right? Okay. Yes? The two-drug regimen, yes. Uh, what about uh, uh, darunavir, ritonavir, dalutegravir, or double D, as they call it in our clinic? 
Yeah, I, I would pick a different two-drug regimen than him. I think um, uh, I didn't pay attention to whether he had previous failure, but if he, he didn't, didn't. didn't have previous failure, this would be one potentially. Dolutegravir-pivirine yeah. uh, would be useful. Or Dolutegravir-3-TC, though that's been studied less rigorously than Dolutegravir-pivirine. So I think... Um, I think either of those two regimens uh, might might be reasonable yeah. in this in this person. There are a lot of people in our clinic, a lot of providers who are choosing dolutegravir with boosted darunavir, and I can't find a lot of data to support that. And I think back to the darunavir um, raltegravir story, where there was a little bit higher virologic failure, and makes you sort of think a little bit, although it may not be applicable with dolutegravir. And then dolutegravir, at least in the DID analysis carries some cardiovascular risk, right? It, it, uh, uh, the protease inhibitors, the only real exception is abazanavir, ritonavir. So at least it, it, with all the confounding that can exist in an observational study, dolutegravir appears to, uh, I, I meant darunavir. Darunavir has some, uh, you know, some cardiovascular risk. So I think moving away from abacavir to darunavir probably doesn't so, so that's a, a, an interesting point that, that Joe just made, which is that lower, I hope you're all aware, I mean, we right now are not using a lot of PIs, but if you're going to use one, you know why adesanivir has a lower cardiovascular re risk, and it probably is because it makes you yellow. It really is, I mean, there's got to be a benefit from that, you know, that, that jaundice you get. <laughs> okay, so here's a common question. Um, got somebody who's on fixed dose combination, uh, a Favrin's based regimen and sort of doing this is a woman who 55 comes in to see you 14 years ago she was diagnosed with HIV has done well and has been on this same she started off on split dose which was a Favrin's with uh, FTC TDF but when the single tablet regimen came out she's been on that forever and doing well she reports no symptoms and when I mean no symptoms you've asked her every way to Sunday you know are you having any any depression? Are you are you sleeping okay? Any nightmares? Uh, everything you can think of, and categorically denies it. And creatinine's fine, and she feels well. And now, what are you going to do? So you're going to continue her regimen. You're going to switch to something else. Basically, is what these choices are. Uh, go ahead and vote. Oh, we're back to next to normal. Okay. 60% would stay the course. Thoughts from the panel? Dave Thomas, what do you think? Well, when you, when you brought it up uh, with her, did she, was she one of these ones that's pretty religiously committed to her uh -huh. combination? Yeah. Yeah, then I might not mess with her. <laughs> right. I mean, some people are, like, interested in hearing about the new things and wanting to explore. Right. But other people are like, you know, this right. is, I'm this doing is great. my life, and, yeah. Well, and I, yeah, I probably wouldn't change it. So, Dave, if you were to switch, Dave. The thing that would, that, would, that would bug me is the fact she's probably postmenopausal. Mm -hmm. And she's been on Sinopovir for many, many years. Yep. And my concern is that now that she's postmenopausal, it's going to have a 1% to 2% bone during mental density because of that, yeah. added to what she's already had from Sinofavir, she could get in, she could feel fine, 
but have be at risk for fractures now. That's right. It's not the efavirenz. People can tolerate that, but it's what she can't feel with the tenofovir. Right. So how many face this in your clinics, right? Most everybody. And it's individualized like everything else. But I think as, as patients are getting older, um, we need to start maybe anticipating these problems. I don't think there's an absolute right or wrong answer. It's individualized, and that's why to Dave Thomas's point, uh, when I confront her, she says, no, 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 I don't want to change. So we just, it's a dialogue, and it's a marathon, not a sprint. We don't have to do everything today. Just kind of get the discussion going, maybe check a DEXA, do some other things, uh, all the normal stuff. All right, this is something. Has anybody ever encountered this? <laughs> all the time. <laughs> so I wanted to make it real, right? So should I recommend coming off of disability for a fully functioning patient? So this is a guy who comes in, um, he returns to you after a while, and you knew him from before, and he's doing well on his regimen, but he's been on disability since 1999 when he was first diagnosed with advanced age. And I mean, it was advanced. He, he was pretty sick. But now he's fully functional. He volunteers at a homeless shelter five days a week, right? So that's what he's doing. And he comes in, brings his paperwork, and says, you need to confirm my disability. What do you do? Sure, happy to fill this out. Eh, I support it, but I can't lie on the forms. I'll fill out the forms, but I really can't support continuing disability or some other option. Won't fill out the forms, I guess it would be four. Let's go ahead and vote. Back to Dear Evan Hansen. <laughs> End of May or early June. Yeah. <laughs> right. Go back to the other doctor. Right. Yeah. So two percent would just keep filling out the form. It's hard not to, right? It's it takes a, it's a long conversation, um, and someone. I, I, Gabe raised the same question with an audience, I think it was in Atlanta, and they said, yeah, but what's a homeless shelter going to do now? You're going to lose this guy, right? Um, again, I don't, I don't know that there's an answer. Uh, I think you know, there is an answer. Yeah, there is? I think there is. I mean, I deal with a lot of people like this in, in Los Angeles, even more so than here, because a lot of my patients went on disability early and survived. But, you know, unfortunately, disability is only usually thought about as functional, not mental or... Uh, psychological. Pulling this guy's disability out from underneath him and saying, you've got to go back to work and you haven't worked since 1999, what kind of job is this guy going to be able to get? How's he going to support himself? How's he going to get his medications? Yeah. It's very real. It's very real and, and it may, he may be perfectly functional physically, but psychologically and mentally, he may still be very different. He thinks he can't work and now he's 18 years, my 20 years out of his chosen profession, and he could get a job at McDonald's maybe right. now. It's, no, it's a good point. Um, I think it puts us in a dilemma. And one of the things I know the um, uh, National Academies are having a series of uh, studies on disability. I think one of the things, especially for you, that you guys who work here in DC, especially for the government, maybe with HHS or other places, that we need to have um, better off-ramps when people are on disability, because you can't maybe just stop it. Uh, and, and the other concern is, what if I 
come off disability, try to work and find I can't. Now in this guy's case, he's working five days a week for a homeless shelter, but a lot of other people can't. It's just something that comes up a lot. It's, it's difficult. All right, and this is the last one. This goes to Dr. Bruce, who's gonna be talking to us later this afternoon. Um, how do I manage a patient on chronic opioid therapy who has chronic neck and shoulder pain? So it's basically the same stem as I used before. The operative part here is had chronic shoulder neck pain for over five years, moderate osteophytes, some foramen narrowing in his neck, um, no indication for surgery, no weakness. But he's been on, on long-acting morphine uh, twice daily for over four years and breakthrough pain, and now he says the pain's not responding like it used to, and he wants a higher dose. Anybody gotten that request? Uh-huh. All right, so what are you going to do? Continue his pain regimen as is, um, augment it with a, maybe a non-steroidal, increases morphine, reduces morphine, changes patch to fentanyl, huh. uh, go to methadone. Uh, what, do you, what do you guys want to do? And, yeah, I'm going to have Doug, maybe you can go to the microphone if you want. Yeah, go ahead and vote while he's walking. On the this is Dr. Tip Bruce. North America, on an island town, Newfoundland, there's an airport. It used to be one of the biggest airports in the world. And next to it is a town called Canada. Welcome to the rack if you come oh. from away. Oh, from away. This is a great play if you get a chance to see it. It's cheap tickets for all and the original cast is still doing and the rock. Some other options, excellent. Yeah, some other options. So Dr. Bruce is going to enlighten <laughs> us. What is the other These option? These are other options. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I don't like morphine, right? Morphine's the uh, diacetylmorphine is heroin. Heroin's metabolized to morphine, right? So if you're doing urine toxicology, there's no way to differentiate if your patient's taking morphine or its more famous uh, cousin, heroin, right? So. In the pain clinics that we operate, we tend to stay away from these things and use synthetic opioids when they're used because it's better for monitoring. So if the person was on oxycodone, fentanyl, or methadone, those are all separate compounds and can be screened for directly. So number one, mor morphine confuses the picture. Morphine's also short-acting. So it's, it's not a great pain med. And even the MS cotton, all you have to do is chew it. And I don't recommend that as a as a thing for patients, obviously. Don't chew your pills. So I would, in this situation, I would actually, uh, methadone can be prescribed off-label for the treatment of chronic pain. That's what we would do in this situation for this patient. It would provide longer-acting pain relief. It would address the patient's pain. It would also allow for better screening. Methadone also has a lower street value for diversion purposes than morphine. But the big thing I'd want to know is, and I think the big question is, just because someone asks for more pills doesn't mean they actually need it. And the bigger question here is screening for substance use disorders or addictive potentiality and whether or not the patient's really just drug seeking. Right, I know you're gonna get into this, but the, one of the questions I think just for the field is long-term long um, opioids as a treatment for chronic pain, to my knowledge, has never been shown to be effective. Yeah, so uh, except for cancer, right, so we're saying non-malignant okay. pain, right. Yes. The, right. These are the kinds of patients we're that get transferred to me. They were already on pain meds. You're already stuck with it. Now it's trying to get the person off. But we would never recommend that people get started on an opioid for chronic musculoskeletal pain. Right. Okay, and that's a preview. So a lot of what we did is I sort of tried to incorporate 
some of what you've already heard today, some of what you're about to hear today, tried to bring, make it real in terms of the questions that I get, and these are the conclusions, undetectable equals untransmissible, great message to motivate patients. Uh, how soon to start, whether you start right away in the ER, whether you do it in a day or two, I think earlier is good, I don't know about immediate. Um, the 184V doesn't really affect your initial therapy much when we're dealing with um, uh, integrase inhibitor stuff. There's these weird integrase mutations that I just thought I'd throw it out there for the resistance mavens who like talking about that stuff. Um, Dolutegravir is now okay, TAF still pending, more data, and uh, for low-level viremia, you don't necessarily have to change. So I think though we had good discussion about that. I think we have a few minutes for questions. Let me just kind of go through these quickly. Um, what about treatment for elite controllers? Good question. Didn't talk about that this year. Would you would you start them on therapy? They're undetectable. Their viral CD4 counts 800. Yeah. So I I think people divide these into kind of elite controllers or super elites. I mean, if someone is literally has no detectable virus consistently um, uh, and a normal CD4 and a normal CD4 CD8 ratio, I probably wouldn't treat that person. But Literally everybody else, um, as someone who has intermittent blips, someone that has an abnormal CD4 CD8 ratio, someone has a declining CD4 cell count for sure, I would treat. And the problem with the message to this super elite is that sometimes they don't hear the message right. You're not telling them not to, you know, you don't have to come back and see me. We just don't think you need therapy right now. And, and there are examples of people who, you know, leave care and then present much later with, with. Uh, progressive disease, so right. I think it's a tricky... And tricky there's, a trans, there's a translation here, too, to the cure research field that you'll hear more and more people talk about functional cure, which is, in essence, training the immune system to hold the virus at bay so that they become elite controllers. Um, my personal opinion, for what this is worth, is maybe not much, is that that's not good enough. Um, what you're, an elite controller is elite controller because their immune system is working 24-7 to keep the virus at bay. That's not necessarily a good state uh, because it's, 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 there's inflammation associated with it more than normal. And so I think if we're going to talk about cure, we should cure. Um, and getting somebody to elite status isn't, in my opinion, uh, it might be a signpost on the way, but we shouldn't be satisfied with that, in my opinion. Um, and, and I would say just that this, was, this is a really important question. And ACDG attempted to do a study trying to look at elite controllers, and the study was closed because we weren't unable to enroll. And I can tell you from personal experience, patients that I tried to enroll in Atlanta, the patients were all excited about this, and then when they went to see their provider, their provider said, no, you don't need treatment. So yeah. we, we failed in that study to educate the providers that we needed to educate about the importance of doing the study. Right. There's a follow-up here question related to the 147G mutation. Um, and that w is there a concern that we might lose dolutegravir or bictegravir if we use that, especially with Lorenzoday? And yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's the tension, right? It, 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 is we, we know that if you get a, one of the more standard mutations, like a 155 uh, or, or a 140 mutation uh, on raltegravir, elvitegravir, that is on the pathway to, to higher level resistance. Right. So, but that, but. Um, you know, it, there, there were some data presented at CROI where um, I think in the Bictegravir trial, there are a couple of people that snuck on therapy that, that had integrase resistance and they suppressed. It was only a few patients. Um, 
so you, I don't know, you can't really make much of a conclusion from that, but, but I think your, you know, your logic was good, Mike. It, it probably doesn't have any impact on spectacular routes uh, and value tegravir, so those would probably be safe. Okay, here's another question that maybe is a relative of the one about somebody on an Afavrin's TDF FTC. With the newer recommendations to maybe lean away from boosting for your first regimen, if you have somebody who's already on a boosted uh, either PI or Elvitegravir, would you just switch them off to the non-boosted because? Well, I think the problem with the boosters is not us. It's the orthopedists, the allergists, the, the um, uh, and, and I think that, uh, and especially as people get older and they require, you know, additional concomitant medications, I, I think there is a good reason to, to get people off boosted, boosted medication if they don't need it. I mean, some people have substantial resistance and they need a, a, a boosted PI, so that's fine. But um, yeah. Especially a boosted integrase inhibitor, because the boosting with integrase inhibitor doesn't really help in making the level higher is not going to be shown to actually prevent resistance anyway. Right. So it, the, having the booster available in the mix doesn't really add anything to what you could already get with unboosted PI, unboosted integrase inhibitors. I think it's a trend that we're going to see happening more just for minimizing drug interactions. And I just remembered when I was trying to think of that Afavrin's uh, ISO, it's, it's a SIP 2D6. That's where I got turned around. Sorry about that. Um, Couple other questions. What about regimens if a patient has a K65R and a 184V? We see this sometimes. Um, anybody want to jump on that? Yeah, that's a really tough one, right? Um, uh, because in in the studies like Ernest and Second Line and the HTG studies, there were people like that, and some even got on uh, a TDF-based regimen and, and stayed suppressed. I think. Um, in our setting, we probably wouldn't use TDF or TAF in that setting, and, and um, you'd probably end up, um, you know, using a, a, a more complicated regimen. Yeah. Um, you could argue, based on the studies that I mentioned, that a boosted PI plus recycled nukes would work. I think Zydovian, in the developing world, they would get Zydovidine, and you could give Zydovidine here, but, um, you know, we, I think we're more worried about the long-term consequences of zydovidine. So, so, um, uh, but but zydovidine would be a perfectly active it's drug. It's the right drug virologically. Virologically, yeah. it's the right drug. Absolutely. That's what okay. And the last question here, unless there's no, um, yeah. I'm going to pitch this to you. This is, uh, let's say you're in your practice and you have this uh, pregnant patient. Can you back up one second? Yeah. We, we, we have Dave and Dave and oh, Dave I, I, have a question I for Joe. Know. Is that why would you not use a two drug regimen like Dolutegravir plus Ropivir? No, no, Funan said the same thing. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, a very good alternative, I think. Yep. Okay, so this is a question about the optimal. Though I would say that that, that regimen is for people who are suppressed, right? right? Mm -hmm. That's where uh, it was studied. So, so that's where it was studied. So it might depend on the viral load. You could perhaps argue that I'll use Zydovidine. Uh, and and, su and suppress them, induce them with, um, mm -hmm. and then and then yeah. switch. That, that that's actually clever. Um, so, okay, good. We figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking on our feet. All right. So the f I have one more here, but um, this question came from the audience about the concerns about atazanavir in terms of um, a pregnant woman 
uh, what about the PPI use if there's reflux and that kind of thing? Is it how would you manage all that? And what do you what do you think? Um, I think I'll 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 toss this to my I would I would call a colleague I phone a friend phone a friend. Um, Lifeline. I, I think it. In this case, you know, I think the TDF, um, FTC, with dolutegravir might be just fine at this point. And I think that might be the good regimen for them because it is listed as an alternative. There is some concern about the accumulation, but I think it'd probably be okay. Um, what about the concern of subtherapeutic levels in long-acting regimens leading to resistance? Uh, you know, yeah, that's a concern. And I think as the drugs get worked out, um, we're going to learn about the, the half-life and the time of the PK. And what's really important to keep your eye on, um, these, the PK of one person is the PK of one person. When you look at populations, they vary, either from their elimination or absorption. And a lot, the thing to pay attention to is what's called the PK tail. Have you heard of that? That's sort of towards the end of the dosing period. And you want to make sure that the majority, vast majority, are above the IC90. And that's where the dosing interval is going to be called. But with certain drugs, that PK tail is very wide, meaning that some people do just fine and some drop more rapidly below the therapeutic challenge. So I think when these drugs get developed, that's one thing on, if you see people presenting like you might later today with Joe, you see a PK curve. Um, coming on the screen, pay attention to the far right side in terms of where the average is and what the uh, confidence interval about that average is. All right, well, we have two minutes left, but I'll go ahead and close. Thank you all very much. Thanks to the panel. Thanks for your putting up with my nonsense. All right. We're